Welcome to the Construction User 2.0 from the Association of Union Constructors. In this podcast, we explore the latest labor trends, industry insights, and important issues in the world of construction. Join us for conversations with industry leaders, subject matter experts, and innovative visionaries as we discuss how we are building the world of tomorrow. Today's guest began his career as an ironworker as an apprentice with Local 63 out of Chicago in 1980. He worked his way up the leadership ladder with stops as conductor, trustee, general organizer, vice president, and nearly everything in between. He was elected general president of the Ironworkers effective July 1st, 2015, and he now works out of Alexandria, Virginia, where he is the proud father of three children and one granddaughter. With over 40 years of service and still going strong, please welcome Ironworkers general president, Eric Dean. How are you doing today? Things are going well. It's a Friday, and I actually have a weekend off, which is a rarity, so it's good. I can't imagine you do get many like super like solid weekends off. No, it's good. Yeah, looking forward to it. So, you know, as, as kind of a, a tradition of this show that is not particularly old now, but, you know, we're going on uh, going on eight, nine episodes. I like to start off with just kind of a ridiculous off-the-wall question. So what is the last song you had stuck in your head, like couldn't break free from it? There's a song by Aaron Lewis that I listen to, and it, it reoccurs every day when I'm taking a shower. Am I the only one? So. Am I the only one by Aaron Lewis? I don't know that I know that one. I, if I heard it, I might get it. I don't know that I... Uh, Not that so popular on the uh, chart hits, but nonetheless. I gotcha. I gotcha. Well, you have been in the, the, the realm of union construction you know, for 40 years. You have been, you have been on the ground for for kind of uh, all of recent, you know, sort of history, ups and downs, just starting off strong, what's the state of the kind of the union and industry? How are we doing now in, in the 2023? So always changing, but very much the same. So when I got in, the unique part about being an ironworker is a ton of iron still weighs a ton of iron. Working aloft is still inherently dangerous and you have to take precautions. But the technology is advanced so much differently to the point where the manpower or the workforce that we have, there used to be significantly a lot more ironworkers on any given job site. And today through modularization and different means and methods, it essentially takes less people to produce the same amount of high-rise activity or industrial activity. But nonetheless, there's still an amount of craft hours uh, to get a certain project done in a certain amount of time, but the delivery and the means and method uh, have evolved and so too have our workforce, you know, our members. What would you say is that like, the, the, what is the most pressing issue is is kind of facing the the uh, the unions right now? What is that it? Obviously, there's an abundance of work at a large scale in the industrial and energy sector that is creating a demand at a time when we're seeing as social scientists have predict through uh, the baby boomer generation leaving, we have this replacement issue of training uh, the next generation of workforce and resupplying not only rank and file trade craft workers, but we got to resupply the senior management, the general form and the superintendents. And that demand has never been... We, I'd say probably prior to the, you know, right out of coming out of World War II, which I wasn't around then, I don't think our union seen the demand to elevate so quickly 
at senior level positions and more craft workers than we are currently accustomed to. You know, apprenticeship programs, they're, they're in a habit, right? They start, they take applications, they do certain things and they become repetitive by nature. And when there's a spike in demand, our response to that demand has got to be appropriate. And not everyone is equipped in their mindset to get there. So that's probably the biggest challenge that scares me right now is the rapid amount of workers we need in areas where they don't necessarily. And and I can give you an example. Please. All the big cities, the high-rise activity is soft because of teleworking. And the COVID, the, the interest rate increases, the right. war and the thing, but the demands and the amount of work through the infrastructure work, the EV, the battery plant, and the ongoing energy work is taking our workforce outside of its traditional core area. So, upstate New York, we're heading for a chip plant. Buffalo Bills going to build a football stadium. Workers in New York went to New York City when there was a demand for extra workers because the city clamored for the extra workforce. It's the first time in a while that there's like an out-migration where the work relies outside of the where the core membership is. And then, therefore, the collective agreements aren't inclined to a, a city guy has never really, not in recent memory, and maybe in a decade and a half, had to go outward for work. It's always the highest concentration of collective bargaining agreements have been centered around our highest membership densities, New York, Boston, Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Seattle, Minneapolis. And we're seeing the work in different parts of the state with a tremendous abundance. And you see those city guys not really used. We joke around in our business, we call them two county boomers. And they're used to work and having a abundance of work and there's still those workers available but for the first time in a long time we're seeing the city soft and the outlying areas just growing memphis and columbus uh all these different places with large-scale projects and people are having to adopt our old habits of traveling a little bit for work and it's just that's probably a new area that a lot of our members aren't accustomed to I can only imagine. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you were a Manhattan, you know, iron worker for, there was always something nearby. I mean, you might, if you were in the greater New York area, but yeah, as I can imagine that adding a commute to people that haven't had that as a part of their, their life paradigm would be a, a, a big hurdle. If you're a structural iron worker and you rely on the bridge work in and out of Manhattan, you'll still stay employed. But if you're a high rise guy and there's not a lot of high-rise activity, or the open shop is encroaching. The, the volume of work and man hours in those uh, concentrated areas is definitely decreasing. But I can tell you, I can point to a bunch of areas. We're in Arizona on multiple chip plants. We're in Memphis right now building a Ford plant, and on and on and on. But we're a three or four times the capacity of the Memphis membership right now on that car plant and still going. So, so this is a, a just a personal ignorance question. If if you're used to building sky rises in Manhattan, Boston, Seattle, the cities you mentioned, I mean, you are a you're a, a high you know a high sky rise worker one year, and the next year you're building a plant. I assume those skills are relatively transferable. It's not it's not a completely different thing, or is it a completely different thing? 
Well, you build a chip plant, the heavy erection of the steel is pretty much uh, akin to building a high-rise. Sure. So structural ironworker is that way. When you get to the niche stuff, building blast furnaces or retooling a car plant or something, there are special skill sets that it's it, it's transferable, but it's always better to have that previous skill working on. That's why people tend to specialize in nuclear. People get their nuclear certification, say, you know, from a from a security background. And then once they do that, they travel and, find, and you know, they stay niche in that nuclear business. Steel mill guys, they don't all stay the same, but steel mill guys kind of stay in the steel mill. And then there are the crossover guys that can go build a refinery, go work on a skyscraper and everything in between, you know, warehousing. So you had mentioned earlier, you know, absolutely. Anytime we have these kind of ebbs and flows in work, you know, there's there's this kind of need of, oh, let's hire, hire, bring more people in. But then as things go back down, how obviously I'm asking you like to describe multi-level chess. It's a big it's a big problem. But how do we make sure we're hiring enough people and getting enough people into the trades, but not over? How do you balance between that labor supply and demand and making sure we're getting enough people, but not too many, but not, you know, how is that? How do we manage that? We met with all the leaders of all the locals and district councils, and what we did was we put the work forecast from, say, Industrial Info, from the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, and we forecasted where the work is, what their current workforce is, what their apprenticeship intake numbers are. We showed them what their organizing activity is from going and looking into the open shop and taking in semi-skilled workers or past members in back into the union. And then we also forecasted how many workers are set to leave now and in the next 10 years by their age demographics so that they can actually navigate and ratchet up their intake on their training so that they're not creating the demand for apprentices after the work has occurred, but to be able to forecast, A, who's leaving, what's their demand in their area or adjacent areas. And so, you know, from that standpoint, we're trying to give them as much data as possible so that it's not reactionary, but being proactive. No, it's great. And I mean, do the, do the forecasts look good? Do, is that, is, is it a problem that's going to be handleable? I, I believe we'll be able to manage, but it's a challenge. You know, you know, we're democratic to a fault the way our union is set up. Sure area is set up to where the leaders are democratically elected and the workers if they don't see the work out the windshield they want to know why we're having this intake of new members and training and being uh, bringing people in because we don't want to add to the unemployment bench and right we, frankly we're not widgets we can't store skilled craftsmen on a bench right and, and women we have to kind of like get that timing just right. Now, you do have the traveling worker that's willing to go to neighboring areas or they get comfortable working for a company and they like the way they're treated and they'll go out of town with the company. So there's a balance between that too. You know. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I was hearing you guys were, were working, you know, creating kind of like the traveling local, the people that are will are kind of go where the work is and, and how is that system, you know, working out? You're just piloting that sort of now. Still, still in the pilot phase, we, we've been able to offer 
any of the locals that are afraid of growing past their capacity beyond the short spurt of work that we would create a traveling uh, traveler's local. And we have members in there and we have successfully placed them. Uh, there's a little bit of reluctance or fear of a new program, but I'll tell you what we've got is a comfort level that contractors call pretty regularly saying, hey, he's promised me or uh, the, the locals promised me X, but I need a hedge or a backup because I don't want to have to pay to travel workers and pay their per diem and out of town costs. And so as a result, uh, it's working, it's in its infancy. So I, I'm not going to say it's a raving success and not a failure, but we definitely have been placing people. And uh, day by day, I, I have uh, weekly calls with our staff and uh, spoke with them this morning. And we're working on five different areas of concentration. And what we do is we take the guys that either left the union or never had an opportunity to be in the union and offer them a longer term success and then now you got that person that's in charge of that local area they're probably going to want to try that person out before they wholeheartedly accept someone from outside their geographical area and say yeah come on in you can join our union so i guess they'll let their work on the job site and then we can transfer those people to where if they want to be a permanent resident of what area's got the hot hand uh so it's it's evolving and i would say it's uh it's a work in progress, but I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm never pleased in anything that never satisfied. <laughs> There's a Steve Earl song. I ain't ever satisfied. That's me. But, uh, nonetheless, I'm seeing progress and, uh, things happen in baby steps with that. I remember, you know, personal aside, when I kind of first started here a few years ago, I was talking to the leadership here and I kind of load is like, why isn't there just kind of like a local zero, like an everywhere local? And they were telling me all the the problems and, and the re everything you just said, the kind of the reluctances and the the reasons that that hadn't happened. And, and then, I, you know, a couple of years later, I was talking to you and some of your staff and I was like, hey, look, they're trying it. I want to see if this I, I am. So I am super rooting for that. I think it's a it's a great idea that has a lot of potential, obviously well, some problems, but. We, we created an organization and our, our members, as I told you, were Democratic default. They're elected and they're to, to be loyal to that core group of people that they're obligated to keep employed, get employed, train. They're loyal to the employers. It's when these, you know, dynamics change in a way where market forces force a 600 person car plant in an area that historically hasn't had that kind of right. availability. So I just had a conversation with the uh, uh, head of construction of Ford. And so far, knock on wood, I'm not going to jinx it. We've been able to get over 600 iron workers into an area where we traditionally had maybe less than 200. So contractors have done their part. The locals done their part. That mobility and portable locals done a little bit of that. And some of it is viewed as a tool and an asset. And some people view it as a threat to, I better hustle up some more people on my own. So it's, it's not meant to be a threat. It's just meant to be a solution. No, I, I absolutely, you know, I'm in the army reserve myself and the army reserve is a thing for a reason. Cause sometimes you have your standing troops and sometimes you need a reserve for it. It, make, it makes absolute sense to have that kind of traveling group of call them when you need them group. Every craft worker likes to travel or live in a motel room. So if you get someone who is uh, willing to do that, all the more reason, because a lot of people never, I, I never had to work uh, coming from Chicago, 
never had to work outside my geographical local work never slowed enough where i had to live out of a motel or sleep in a suitcase Chico- my local was all two counties and part of two counties I, I came from a small geographical area and there's enough either industrial work commercial construction work or just general iron work that i was fortunate enough in my career to not have to do that my father had to go out of town nine months, six months at a time. Sometimes economies change and you gotta, if you wanna keep feeding your family, you gotta go find an alternative. Some of these workers though are used to travel a little bit more than some of our members are accustomed. Makes a lot of sense. So shifting gears just a little bit. So, you know, I was, you know, talking to to Dan, our CEO, and I was looking, you know, at our, our numbers just within our organization and just in the the management, the construction, the contractor side of things, the number of contractors just like has consolidated considerably over the last few years, you know, from several thousand to to 1800 or so. The work hours haven't gone down, but the the number of contractors, because there's just been so many so much consolidation are we looking at potential consolidation on the labor side or, you know, we have 15, 14, 15 different unions all doing some overlapping. Some Are we looking at any, as, as the world changes, are unions going to consolidate? That, that's an age old topic. It's been brought up for a while. There are some larger unions that we're driving that there should be a consolidation. And there are the smaller locals who have their skill specialty that, you know, will fight to the death. Uh, right. The practicality of it is there, you know, I've been in ongoing talks with other unions, not about merging per se, but forming alliances and relying on each other if there's commonality in our trade. And uh, near term, I don't know that there's any of that eminent. Long term market forces may dictate some of that in the economic, but with the increase in activity across the board, people will it'll take a lot longer than anyone anticipates. Yeah, I can. I mean, again, these are, these are, you know, old and and proud groups. I can, and nobody's going to take consolidation lightly. You know, they, nobody I think wants that, but I was just wondering if, uh, if that's a possibility or a, a solution in any way. So this is set, this episode is set to air actually while you and I are both at Construction Leadership Conference, uh, down in Savannah. This will be coming out next Tuesday. So I wanted to take that opportunity as, is, you know, you and I are both at Leadership Conference and to talk a little bit about leadership and the, the, you know, the coming up of how do we lead a, you know, the construction industry specifically in both industrial has a lot of traditions and have lots of kind of traditions and, and ways that it has worked for a very long time. But the world is changing, like you said, telework and industrial uh, computerization, you know, batteries over. How are we leading to the future? How are, how are we handling that? Well, for me to attend that leadership conference, it gives me the opportunity to sit, talk with the construction users, along with the folks that are building our industrial complexes. We find out where the demands are from us and what the market forces are or the conditions that per se change. I'll give you an example, you know, but 15 years ago, I was back home, we retooled the Whiting refinery in Northwest Indiana, and there was a lot of modularization there. In the olden days, we would stick build that one beam at a time, and then the mechanical trades would come in and integrate their piece, and then you'd have one big module, and it'd be hoisted and plugged into the next piece. Now that stuff's getting shipped in, prefabricated, and we had to work with a blended crew because it wasn't quite my trade or two other trades work 
So we, we had a blended unloading crew to accommodate the fact that whether it was their work, my work, or the other trades work, everyone was kind of covered. And historically, that would have never been like that. There would have been a crew of iron workers that went, and then the other two mechanical trades would have went and grabbed their work. The contractor said, no, we're going to work under this new paradigm. And people were very resistant to the new paradigm. But in the end, it sorted out. And I think everyone got their equitable share, and no one really was short in the end. But it takes sometimes the owner or the construction uh, industrial contractors say, this is the communication to say, this is how I need to do this differently. And it's always been done. And that that's just an example of how we did things rather than have three different crews waiting to see what shows up on the next ship or rail car or truck. You just have a blended crew to do some of that work that you can mutually agree on so that you can be more efficient at expeditions. Just kind of, is that hard to do? Are, are blended crews... Do do the unions speak the language? Do the, let me try that again. Do these crews integrate well and seamlessly, or is that is that something that has to be adapted and overcome? People are resistant because if you build a car plant a certain way for the last twenty years, and they come up with new technology. Sometimes one of the trades actually's work is completed off site. And now the new portion is still like a heavy rigging module. So there, there is a little bit of Bickerson between, you know, the, the, the trade that gets the final amount of work after there's been some consolidation versus the broken down pieces of that. But, you know, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to keep our disputes out of the side of the owner and the client and work it out so that it's harmonious for the contractor. But oftentimes there are people who just remember how it was when it was a dismantled component versus an integrated component, right? Right. That makes a lot of sense. So touching back on leadership, are we going to be leading more mixed crews going forward or are we going to hit an equilibrium of that? What is the future? What do you think the future holds in that regard? Well, it all depends on the type of work there is. We've come up with some helping hands agreements in the trades where there's blended crews are in competition with say open shop new technology has forced us to relook at how things work you know it's not necessarily the new style of construction methodology isn't identical to how it was when it was constructed trade by trade sector sometimes these pieces are arriving with mechanical stuff included and structural components included. And it's in our best interest to work that out. We're doing a little bit of that on the offshore wind stuff as, you know, we don't have a lot of experience building offshore wind terminals and that, and there's a lot of work integrated. And so if you're going to be out at sea sleeping on a deck, they're kind of insisted on they'll respect traditional trade craft, but they also have a blended crew that you're not going to sit in your bunk and be idle if there's work to be done and they're not sending the ship back to go get two more guys from another trade. And so that's just one of those things that we're working that out. So makes that, a lot of sense. Yeah, to be fair to the end user. That makes a lot of sense. So obviously just kind of, you know, wrapping up, we, you know, we are the Association of Union Constructors. A lot of our, you know, all of our, our, our members are our contractors. What can we as as the management and the contractors do to to help support and 
and help support the unions? What can we do out there to, to you know, keep unions strong? Well, historically, or, or the last couple times, the, the leadership has come down to our board meeting and I asked them for a greater utilization and emphasis on apprenticeship training. In order to get the workforce of tomorrow, the industrial contractors have to insist that the local union and tell the owner that they're going to incorporate more apprentices at a good ratio, like a four to one or maybe a 25%, uh, you know, number so that you're slowly always reintegrating and getting the next generation of craft person to do that long-term continual maintenance on a project or that new capital spend on their project. So there's, there's a familiarization with that sector of the industry. And I'm not accusing anyone of doing this, but there, there's been times where the contractors put only journeymen on because they mark up labor and there's more profit to mark up a journeyman's wage than there is a discounted apprenticeship's wage. So higher apprenticeship utilization and buying into that because that's where tomorrow's workers going to come from when they call five years from now and they have their next big turnaround or job maintenance. So that's a self-investment in them cooperating with the local unions to get more apprentices into the system and then get familiarized with that specialized niche work. Amazing. Well, Mr. Dean, thank you so much for your time. I can't uh, thank you enough for being willing to come on and talk to us. It's always a pleasure. You've just listened to the Construction User 2.0 podcast from the Association of Union Constructors. Don't forget to subscribe to get all future episodes of what is going on and what is current in the union construction and maintenance industry. 